Episode 7 is brought to you in three parts. First, in light of the 50th anniversary of May 1968, we explore the opening plenary from this year's international convention in Chicago, rightly called 50 Years of 1968, paying special attention to the remarks by panelists coming out of the new left. Next, we look at Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Donald Glover's This Is America, where we examine the apparently conservative nature of so-called woke black identity art. Finally, between royal weddings and Brexit negotiations, Pam Nogales was able to sit down with fellow Platypus members Cam Hardy and Rory Hannigan to discuss the Irish question. International Convention in Chicago, the University of Chicago, that happened on April 6th. And the lineup was Mitchell Cohen, um, who is the author of An American Revolutionary in Nicaragua and part of, uh, in his own time, supported the Free Breakfast for um, the Free Breakfast program um, designed by the Black Panther Party. Um, was involved in a kind of free clinic effort in Brooklyn. He's very much a kind of grassroots guy. And then we had Abdul Al-Kalimat. He is a professor of African-American studies at UIUC and author of Malcolm X for Beginners. He was involved in this Black Power turn. Then there was Joseph Estes, who was speaking as a member of the Campaign for a Socialist Party, but he's also a member of Platypus since 2011. And then there was Johnny Mercer, who was the last minute addition to the panel. And he was the younger guy. I think probably Joe and him are similar age. And Johnny Mercer is a member of the Socialist Party of Great Britain, so SPGB, as well as an admirer as an artist of the Situationist International, as well as a member of the IWW. So he characterized characterized himself as being somewhat schizophrenic in his politics, which does come out in a maybe more honest way than the schizophrenia of the other panelists, which I appreciated. So Mitchell Cohen and Abdul were the people on the panel that were there, right? Like they were of the generation of the new left, even though like Abdul, I think both Abdul and Mitchell were kind of resisting even the category of the new left. I mean, Abdul very straightforwardly goes, what do you mean by new left, Joe? Like, what are we talking about here? And he was a part of the new communist movement, And so he was just straight up asking, like, do you mean the new left failed? And do you mean by that also that the new communists failed? And how so? And there's a really interesting tense moment in the panel between Joe and him. Because, like, Abdul is, like, confronting Joe. He's saying, how did it fail? Tell me how it failed. Like, under what criteria? And Joe just sort of says, well, for the reasons that I said earlier, it doesn't bring about a party. And Abdul, you get the sense that he's like, No, but we were there making this intervention. And it's one of 
probably the most interesting moment on the panel when he actually tells you how he saw the whole split of the new left. It seems like Abdul was sort of polemicized by Joseph Estes saying that um, ultimately the new left failed. Because then wrapped up in that is this question, well, can we learn anything from it? That they were between a rock and a hard place and they did maybe the best they could in a lot of ways and sort of inheriting this problem of the party question and this crisis sort of ridden state that it was in from the old left. He was telling you why he held to his convictions at the time that he did. He said, and this is something that Chris Catrone picks up on during the Q&A, he says, you know, our rejection was of Browderism meaning Earl Browder, the secretary of the Communist Party USA, who represents this kind of reformism of the Communist Party in the United States. Earl Browder was the guy that debated um, Max Schachman uh, in New York that was hosted by C. Wright Mills. You know, these are the polar, the two polar opposites, you know, the third way um, Schachmanism, and then you have the Earl Browder CP, you know, the uh, reformism and what what you get from Abdul is like well we we didn't want to go in these directions you know we thought something else was possible I'm not sure what you mean by the new left mm -hmm. when does that end or well I mean what I talking about I, so I sort of like periodized it in terms of like essentially I think like the new left is everything uh, from the Cold War on it's the new sort of like movements that emerge out of the Cold War and everything that did the, the sort of like that emerges in like the process of destalinization and the collapse. So there was something of, called the New Communist Movement. Mm -hmm. You call that the New Left? They are part of the New Left, yes. Yes. So the rebirth of Marxism. Mm hmm. That's exactly it, yeah. Was itself like inadequately Marxist. On what basis do you make that judgment? Um, I've liked to several of the things that I said with, with respect to, to, um, well, for instance, uh, the, uh, the fallout of, of, of SDS is unfortunate precisely because it splinters into these sects that ultimately are either trying to reproduce, they're pre reproducing forms of sectarianism, um, whether they're Maoist or, uh, or, 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 or Stalinist or Trotskyist, that harken back to a form of politics that ultimately um, cannot sort of like escape the gravity of Stalinism and of the problem of the failure of the Russia, Russian Revolution. I mean, see, there's no way, easy way of actually, go ahead. See, Sorry. what happened in SDS, mm -hmm. first there was this polarity between people who believed that Progressives here should support the struggle in the national liberation organizations. Mm -hmm. So it was to support the Vietnamese struggle. The others were rediscovering Marxism. And so RIM II was that wing that then developed into uh, these different formations. And these different formations then hooked up with people who had been purged from the CP and were part of the Provisional Organizing Committee uh, who held to a more uh, revolutionary Marxist position uh, against the history of Browderism. And uh, 
What was rediscovered uh, at that same time was the emergence of Marxism coming from the third world, mainly China. And so the republication of Marxist texts mm -hmm. came from foreign language press out of China and China books and uh, from other places like India and so forth that had publishing operations. So suddenly now we had access to the texts. I don't think that's irrelevant. It's not, no. And so we then suddenly we're reading the texts and we're rethinking Marxist theory in relationship to the reality. So for example, uh, with regard to the question of racism in the United States, we had the rediscovery of the national question. And so we read what the Soviets wrote about it. We read what the Chinese wrote about it. We took the Comintern's position and tried to understand the history of black people in this country. I don't think that's irrelevant. I think that's fundamental. So he's part of a new communist movement and they're rejecting the old communist leadership. Um, there's been some really good material actually in the PR on the new communist movement, the interview. Um, Max Album, he's here, yeah. It's Max Album. So he was part of this new communist movement and, you know, they're like taking up Marx once again. And in that sense, he saw himself as fighting the, what we would call in Platypus, the old left, a kind of like taking up the mantle of communism towards a new direction, still believing that a communist party was necessary, right? But the question is how this was all gonna come about. But the primary, therefore, rejection of the Soviet Union was that it was reformist. Like, they inherit this idea of communism in America, let's say, with Abdul, as being, you work with the bourgeoisie and you, uh, you know, you work within the popular front with the Democrats. And then you're like, oh, well, okay. So then came this new generation of people who were like, well, no, we're communists, but like, you know, we're communists. Like we, we want the revolution. And these communists over here don't want the revolution. But then of course, you're presented with a fundamental problem of institutional discontinuity. Because then, then what? You're gonna build the new party? You know, the party was supposed to inherit all the lessons of history, of the struggles, of attempts at reform and revolution. But now you're gonna, what, like start a new party? And like somehow pretend that you can like understand all of the struggles of the 19th and 20th century, that you're gonna know better? It's like you have an inkling that you might be able to do something better, but you really don't know better. Uh, I like your point about reformism, but we have to fundamentally make a distinction between reform and revolution. If you don't understand that history is made by reforms, do you have children? Do they go to school? Are you concerned about what they learn in school? How about health care? Anybody got insurance? Anybody been sick lately? How about your mama? These are reforms. If you make a revolution, what do you think the next day is about? Reforms. And you, the reforms are only going to be possible to the extent that the working class will implement them. Take Cuba. What is Cuba about today? They have difficulty feeding themselves. You think a revolution can exist without people being fed? Reforms, changes in other words, changes in how the society is structured. It's a step-by-step -step process. 
analyzing what the Soviets did. You're looking at reforms. How do you change the factory system? How do you change distribution? How do you change decision making? You can call the word revolution all you want to, but in the real world, in the material world, you're talking about changes, and those changes are, in fact, reforms. He does not like to talk about the 60s as what could have been, though. He rejects that whole way of thinking about history, and I think it's an important intervention that he makes in the panel. Um, whenever, whenever he senses that, like, Joe is saying things like, they should have given us a party, they should have done this, the new left should have done this, Abdul comes back with, like, look, you build the future on the present as it is. You're building it on the history that happened, not on the could be. He has that pushback. Um, Which is, well, also realistically in one way, like, acceptable. Um, meaning, right, we can't just blame the, the new left for its failure on its own grounds. It's also a failure of the preceding history of the left, right? It's also attached to the conditions that they inherited and attached to the kind of, like, meaning maybe it was no longer even possible to have a party. I, like, I don't think that I could give the, meaning, yeah, like, the, the possibility of a party was also much absent already by the 60s. So I guess, yes, that would be something that I would disagree sort of with Joe with, that we can sort of summarize the failure of the new left by not giving us a party. The, the party model was being rejected through and through for good reasons in many occasions, but, right, inadequately critiqued. And yet, I mean, when you get Johnny Mercer's whole presentation, which I know sounded a bit, I mean, he kind of like just gives you like, look, I'm not going to give you Paris, 1968. He's like, Paris, 1968. <laughs> Let me set the scene. The workers were on strike. A third of the French workers were on strike. I mean, when you hear the facts sort of summed up like that, you're like, okay, holy shit. They were fucking you know, close like as A third fuck. of the French workers were on strike, you know? Right. But then it's like, well, what happened? Right. right? Like, how are they going to... Because, you know, Johnny Mercer, for for whatever schizophrenic you know, leftism that he has by his own, he, yeah, by his own admission, he pretty much tells you that what's necessary somehow is to take state power away from the capitalists. He says it in the beginning of his opening. He takes, he says, well, like from, from the capitalists, away right? Take, from the take capitalists. state power from, from the capitalists, right? But when you get to like yeah, the take how, state power. he's take state power. confused about it. Sure. Because he rejects, and at one point very explicitly so, what he calls a quote-unquote Leninist conception of the party and that he thinks it's not Marxist. He's like dis making this distinction. It's like Leninism and then there's Marxism. Yeah, firstly, I'd, I'd like to make a serious distinction which hasn't been made yet between Marxism and Leninism, okay? Mar Marx believed that the emancipation of the working class must be the work of the working class. Uh, Lenin believed in a vanguard political party um, of intellectuals, um, professional revolutionaries leading the working class. And he believed in this because he didn't believe that the working class could achieve anything other than trade union consciousness. The, the, the only political organisation that I'm possibly prepared to support is the Socialist Party of Great Britain. That's why I'm a member of the Socialist Party of Great Britain. In all other regards, I'm, yeah, street fighting anarchist. What's, what's the problem? Maybe I'm, you know, maybe there is one, but yeah, it doesn't, not for me, but you know. I used the word schizophrenic before you did, so... <laughs> <laughs> but, I, mean, I mean, for example, you spoke about, like, the end goal of being, like, the abolition of money, right? Mm. Doesn't seem well, that's Marx, but... Yeah. Right, but, but, but again, like, to abolish money, first you'd have to abolish capitalism, right? And you'd have to, like, substitute some economic system, right? I mean, even then the Bolshevik Revolution, it didn't abolish money, and, the, and the, it seems to me the abolition of money is the last 
and essentially a technical stage of something that follows a profound political and economic transformation of society, mm. right? And 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 yet, like like that goal sort of somehow is like again, it, it, it does seem to me that it's basically a kind of anarchist impulse mm. that you're pushing, and then I kind of wonder, well, why, like, why, where does the party fit in? Mm. Because it does sound to me like that's really what you are. You're an anarchist. And then why call yourself a member of something called the Socialist Party? Well, well because, because, because the Socialist Party of Great Britain does believe in using the democratic powers available to us to, um, to, to, to disband and take, take state power away from, from the capitalist class. The absence of a proper international does condition that problem. But the, not even the Frankfurt School Adorno Benjamin well, Benjamin's dead, sorry, but not even Adorno or Marcuse, sorry, are able to sort of do away with. Like, and they're trying to sustain as much as possible a Marxist perspective and a critical revolutionary perspective, but they can't really do so completely in the absence of that, like, historical element, which is the party, right? They can't alone just by think their way out of the problem either. But you get to 68 and the failure of 68 in Paris, and then you tell us how it failed, is there was no political leadership capable of yielding that power away from the capitalists. And then the answer, of course, is you would need an organized working class party that could set up a challenge. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But that's where you stop and you say, well, no, not the party, the spontaneity of the people. Right. Marcuse did get brought up in the panel it got brought up by uh, Mitchell Cohen, who said that, um, so everyone's reading Marcuse when, you know, we were around, and it was a really depressing book, One Dimensional Man, and he also didn't like how it was written, and he was like, oh, you know, like, it's really depressing, and then he tells us what he did with the books. He apparently tied a brick to the book, and then, like, threw it. I don't know, like, through a window, I don't know, through a window, or, like, I don't know who he was throwing at. Now, Marcuse, uh, one of his most famous books that we were all reading in our collective at the time, Ritalin Collective, out of Stony Brook University, um, was One Dimensional Man. And that was, like, the most depressing book, aside from being the most poorly written book, but it was one of the most depressing books you could ever read, because he said, and many of us agree with him, that it's hopeless that the working class and its leadership is so bought off by capitalism that it, it's hopeless that our brains are being taken over, <laughs> like aliens are taking over our brains. We can't even think anymore. But so some of us actually tied his book to bricks and then threw it through windows where we go to Ryerson because <laughs> we thought it was a nice irony talking about the situation <laughs> to, to use the most depressing book possible to just make a revolution or what we thought was a step in the revolution. But I don't know. Well, we have a lot of work cut out for us. Did any, any I would say for you guys, sort of, yeah, a moment that perhaps sparks it fly? Any, I mean, we've talked about reformism, and I think we had a reformism tangent that was we shouldn't discard entirely. Um, but then, right, it, perhaps uh, other sort of other potential places of agreement. I think the important question to ask when we're reflecting on panels are like, so what were sort of some surprising moments of agreement that we can say unexpected? I don't know about surprising, but Mitchell Cohen and Abdul, Abdul and Mitchell both seem to agree that the new left did not fail. They said the new left did not fail. 
It did not fail. Um, and they made that really explicit in the panel. Um, and so... I guess we should take that. Yeah, meaning that's super important. Sounds like, okay, you're both part of the new left generation. You do think that this activity and its various iterations and groups or whatever manifested into something that's politically useful, but are you really going to argue that it, it led to socialism? Or some socialist no, revolution? Of course no, it did. No, of course it's... So of course that's more of a descriptive statement. You have to read, you have to read on terms of like they succeeded in the, what they wanted to achieve, which means that right their goal was never socialism, right? That right like you you need to sort of spin the sort of we didn't fail because we achieved our goals. So then just just shows you what their goals were, right? And sort of the limited said, scope. Like I meaning I might said, be simplistic. He said 1968 wasn't a this is Mitchell Cohen. Mitchell Cohen said 1968 wasn't a failure because we are still pursuing the transformation of the institutions of society. So what I heard from that, because he quotes Rudy Duchka, he says, you know, Rudy Duchka says like this 1968 is characterized as the long march through all of the institutions of society. He, he's, he sees 68 as presenting this big moral question. That's how he puts it. That it was a moral question for us. It was up to us to ask it, to press it, right? That like otherwise people would ignore it. Um, and so we put it on the map and like, isn't it successful because aren't we still pursuing this transformation of the institutions of societies? Well, we put it out there. That's how okay. he understood it, it seems. Yeah. Okay. At least. Mitchell Cohen. What is the transformation of institutions of society? What does that mean? Well, what it meant in actuality, yeah. And actuality was the opening way for neoliberalism. Oh, exactly. It means making the corporate world more diverse. I, I don't know. In academia, I don't understand what's his he means, conception of he it. He means that, okay, when we were in New York and we were like building the free clinic for people, we knew that we knew that the state wasn't going to give that to people. So we had to build the institutions that people needed for their everyday concrete needs. And we couldn't fight for those things at a larger scale, at a more universal scale, without building those institutions first. So we had to build the alternative institutions. We had to build the free breakfast for kids where you give people what they need. You had to build the free clinics while still fighting. This is where it gets blurry. Fighting for that larger picture. But you couldn't do one without the other. And Ed Remus from the audience... Um, one of our members, he was like, okay, so best case scenario, you get all these people to be part of your institutions. They're convinced communism should happen as a result of being part of the free breakfast program, as a result of being part of the free clinic, as a result of being part of these people's institutions, they're down with the program. What do you do? And he literally said, I'd like to think that we cross that bridge when and if we get there. And then he chuckled. So to me, there was a sense of even disbelief in his own like end goal. Like he was like, well, like that would be a great problem, right? Problem. Like he he literally said a right wing coup is so much more believable and and possible than a left wing coup. He said that at one point, like a Handmaid's Tale, like Christian theonomy or something, that 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 could happen because they all are obsessed with AK-47s and gun ownership or something. So, of course, they'd be able to do it. Well, you could take different conclusions from that that statement. You could say arm the people, but, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Right, no, exactly. Then you can do that and talk about gun control. No, but how how is that sort of, like, uh, transforming the institutions, this understanding of reformism in that sense, right? Like, piecemeal yes. Yes. sort of reform yes. or yes. something? How is that different from, like, a Bernsteinian kind of position of we're just naturally evolving towards it? We just got to keep the goal in mind and have free clinics. Well, the, the difference way. is that it's worse, actually. I mean, with Mitchell, it's not, the fight's not happening within the party. Because, you know, with, with, with Bernstein, like, the fight was happening within the party, within the international. So that then it was about the decision of the direction of the party. With Mitchell, there's no party, which is what Ed Remus was getting to. He was like, okay, and then now how are these people going to end up fighting against the Democrats? Like, how, how do your community programs not just become another way of the Democrats looking good when they, like, show up to your clinics and, you know, just like... Um, what happened in Chicago with, with Occupy, uh, with these Democratic Party officials who like showed up and were just like, I'm with the people, right? Like, how do you stop that from happening? And he didn't have an answer. He did not have an answer. He made these jokes about how, yeah, well, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, like one is syphilis and the other one is, I don't know, some other sexually transmitted disease. That's right? Julian and Assange, yeah. I see. Uh -huh. I see. Right. But it's like, OK, so what does it add up to, though? Because now, like, it, it, it was like grassroots, the people We need to show the people we need to give them concrete needs. We need to show them where we're at. We need to be there for the people. And in that way, show them that another world is possible. No, I watched the Bobby Kennedy documentary, which is just like telling you from the beginning that he was tapping MLK. He was tapping MLK at the early 60s. And then like you see him campaigning in 68 for president, using all of these lines, losing all of his going to New York, talking to the people and using this exact same rhetoric for his campaign. Like it's the Democratic Party like that was just like five, yeah. six, seven years earlier absolutely against civil rights the ones that were sort of tapping the home of mlk which was like it was signed by bobby kennedy and then he's using the exact same rhetoric to in his campaign i i just like it was just like this like crazy stark reminder you see it when you watch the documentary i'm not talking about being democrats i'm not talking about being servile i'm talking about being there representing our ideas and forcing them to put the police on us and put us out polarize it on the basis of something real, but you have to be there. That's the whole point. Engage in the politics of the society in which we live. He brought up, he brought up the Harold Washington campaign as being like a positive development, a development where people learned that they could stand against the daily machine, that they could stand against this like, you know, democratic machinery. But of course, I mean, he's running as a Democrat. So what, I mean, so what's the final takeaway? Like, what's the final takeaway of that political campaign? What he's saying is that it's our jobs as revolutionaries to plug into these mass movements. So like when I, I can imagine him responding to me when I say, well, okay, well, what's the big takeaway from this campaign if the man is running as a Democrat anyway? Like, what are people going to learn? He's like, well, you have to be there to get them to take away the right political lesson from it. I mean, look, he's not entirely wrong, right? The question is like, well, you, you build a party? Like, what do you do? How, how do you sustain the, the lesson? Like, in what kind of political institution? I'm not sure. When Harold Washington was elected, uh, a lot of people on the left stood aside 
and condemned the election because it was electing a Democrat, as opposed to understanding it was expanding democracy, which is the basis on which a lot of radical consciousness happened among the masses of people. So your brother's bound and gagged, and they've chained him to a chair. Won't you please come to Chicago just to sing? In a land that's known as freedom, how can such a thing be fair? Won't you please come to Chicago for the help that we can bring? We can change! Childish Gambino's This Is America has become an overnight cultural phenomenon, and it's definitely the kind of video you have to watch more than once. Throughout the piece, Gambino plays the complex role of America herself, from violence to the use of entertainment as a distraction. He's playing both the caricature and the ringleader. The internet was quick to pick up tons of hidden messages that were scattered throughout the video. Here's some that you might have missed. Audrey was actually giving me a bit of a rundown of her, because he's a comedian too, Audrey, right? Yeah, he started yeah. Uh, in a sketch group. He was at NYU. He became a writer for 30 Rock, but he started in a sketch group called Derek Comedy, and it was a bunch of guys at NYU um, okay. in, like, the early 2000s. Um, okay. But, yeah, no, he, his orientation towards, like, black America has always been very self-hating and, like, Spike Lee-esque, like, middle-class black guy who, like, hates poor black people and hates how they're dumb and they like money too much and that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily about reparations, his line. Like it's more, it's more like kind of middle-class uh, finger wagging at poor black people. <laughs> and, but it's, okay. it's weird because it's kind of opportunistically benefiting from like the BLM anti-police brutality kind of sentiment. So it's very unclear as to what he's doing. That's why that piece in Spin, um, I forget the author's name, but it was about the cynicism of Donald Glover's This America. It's, that, that's the title of it. Um, that's a really good piece because he highlights Donald Glover's actual orientation uh, towards like these issues. And, and, his, and his trajectory, where in like, 2011, Donald Glover um, you know, bemoaned hashtag activism. So he oriented himself as like opposed to the kind of like woke performative like um faux radicalism or something of like internet activism but he's participating in it so it's it's very confused yeah i think i think with him meaning not knowing anything about his background and just looking at the at the video film i was gonna say <laughs> meaning i think that it really falls into this category where you do not know if is pastiche a form of critique or like in, a, in reappropriating a certain kind of music and a reappropriating kind of sort of visual imagery, right? Like the, the line between sort of like affirming these forms, affirming these styles, affirming this music, affirming and critiquing them, right? It's kind of very blurry for me. And for me, it just felt like a reaffirmation. 
I mean, in, in, in the sort of instead, and even the reaffirmation of the shock of the experience of the man getting shot after, like, where you have, like, I don't even know if you can call this a sort of African or Southern beat that seems to be very Caribbean, like, that, that intro sort of has this kind of Caribbean winds sound to it. Um, and to then, like, the shock transition with uh, the first guy who gets shot. And then again, with, like, the second round where he's, like, shooting all the gospel people. I, like that sort of like face value shock and awe moment like I feel like it's it felt trite I it was like I was like oh no okay I guess this is where where culture is going it's just gonna sort of remind us that there is black violence against black in America or just violence like gun violence in America all over again telling us the same thing that the New York Times and the Guardian or whatever has been telling us forever um, so yeah, I didn't find, I, I, it's good to know the background because, but I didn't say you have, you know, you have the object, you have the video, which then dominates the music, of course, dominates the lyrics, uh, way too much. Like one of the things that I heard him say, um, during the Met Gala appearance was that he was like, somebody just asked him about his video who had just come out like a day or two before. And he was like, well, I just wanted to make a good song. And that was sort of his answer to having him wanting to comment even further. So it felt like, oh, is he really retreating? And sort of in the terms of the success of the video taking over the song, I don't know. But yeah, this idea of like the video then really does dominate the... I think the Finn piece said something about how this song really sounds like a half-assed attempt at a Kendrick Lamar song. Um, it also incorporates the juxtaposition of like folksy African music or right that's or that's Caribbean, what i meant Afro- the music. and then um like very contemporary like mumble rap trap beats or whatever um right. which which in if you notice in black panther in the movie they did the same thing juxtapose hmm. contradictions meaning yeah. these things are supposed to point to contradictions of like quote-unquote american culture right uh, or black culture meaning i rather call it american culture um but it is and that's the other thing like that that, that i guess is this is america yeah right we're not talking, uh, he's not saying, like, this is black America. He's saying, this is America. Uh, which, I, at least from that end, I do appreciate. Um, but, of course, the emphasis is on some sort of idea of black culture. What do you mean? Like, I mean, it's not, like, an affirmation of black culture. Like, it's not a black is beautiful. You don't see it as well, a... no, it's like black people shooting each other. But intermixed with, like, beautiful dance moves great like rhythmic lyrics as uh, sorry uh, tunes and then like lyrics that also go right there's like i'm so pretty and he's yeah but the... but but look at the style of the the dancing it's like that like bojangle dancing like when people with blackface used yeah. to dance you know it's like an exaggerated limbs um that like the black entertainers used to look like animalistic yeah, yeah. Like as right. a way of you know um downplaying their humanity and these kinds of things um he's he's using that obviously like self-consciously you yes. know and he's keeping that like 19th century hair situation but then he's shooting the gospel singers and the black gospel singers are usually seen in as like you know like the woke people right because the churches during the 19th century there used to be the places that helped with the Underground Railroad and, you know, people would be educated because they would read the Bible and stuff. And then this guy is, like, shooting the gospel singers. And then they're, like, dancing yeah, afterwards yeah. about yeah. it. They're, like, you know, looking at the camera and, like, having a good old time. There's a car burning in the background and they're all, like, you know, like, tap dancing in front of it. And it's messy, right? It's not like a... 
elevation of black culture or celebration of it. It seems to be about like the violence of it and the kind of incoherence of it. And then there's just basic sensationalism, which I think is clearly a part of it. And yeah. as he walks off in one of the last scenes, he's smoking a joint. So. And he throws it away after hitting it. So he kind of like also like smokes it, but like gives up on it or something because has this like, he's grossed out by it somehow and he just flicks it off. Like he doesn't really seem to stick to that joint very, like he has ambivalence about the joint. <laughs> I found him to have a difference. I mean, Donald Glover's always approached like blackness as an other, as an outsider, in terms of like American blackness or whatever that construct is to people. He's always, it's like this mixture of like hatred and pity. He's dealing with his own issues. It's all very narcissistic projection of his own issues with his own identity. It's a disparaging depiction of what's popular right now in hip hop and of black Americans generally. He had an Afrofuturism kind of funk album not too long ago. I mean, he's my age or maybe a little older, you know, he's in his 30s. Um, I don't think he's, I don't think it's a sympathetic like regurgitation of the popular trends right now. You know, it's funny. I mean, when you just said that this is seen as some kind of elevated, woke, uh, black art, I mean, that to me sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo. I don't even... First of all, I don't have no idea what the hell that means. Um, I mean, I just saw normal woke white people posting how this video was beautiful and amazing. Uh, for, like, it's, you know... Why do they think that it's beautiful and amazing? Oh, and I'm, I don't because know Because somehow... Like, I think it's because they somehow think it's speaking some sort of truth. Right? What truth? Right, of course. I, the, my sense is, like, this is speaking no truth that we don't already read in the newspapers, right? No, but, but what do the white people think that it's saying? So it's a kind of like self-deprecation mixed with an apologetics in a way. This is why I think it's an affirmation. Like, because at the end it's just reproducing that which is sticking to critique. It's literally reproducing that. This is where it becomes blurry for me. I mean, I feel like Godard is my, always my example of this. Sort of like, there's something that's trying to be critiqued through the form, but in fact, at the end, it's just kind of reproducing it and you can't break, and it's very hard. Of course, there's ambivalence in the experience of watching it, and they're perhaps sharing their own ambivalence through the form that they take. Um, or I don't know Glover with his video, but like that's why I feel like isn't this just reaffirming everything that we might need to be critical of? I think I think a lot of I think a lot of white people like it because it it affirms their view their perspective of I guess how they view it's a it's an objectified perspective of like poor black people or something like it affirms their perspective because Donald Glover is aping that perspective ultimately. Yeah, in in. In Spike Lee's Bamboozled, because, yeah, that's the first that gave me, like, bamboozled vibes. And, you know, in Pierre Delacroix, in the main character, one of the main guys, he's like, feed the idiot box. And he's, like, hitting the TV, you know, and he's like, oh, like, basically, like, you know, people, like, black people, you've been hoodwinked, you know, you've been bamboozled. It's like, I don't know, like, there's misquotes of Malcolm X in there somewhere, I think. Um, and, and but of course, you know, I mean, we know what Spike Lee's career is like. I mean, Spike Lee is part of the, the black bourgeoisie. He's, he's like New York royalty. And, you know, he touches something and it turns into gold. And I think now they're, um, they're 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 reviving. She's got to have it as a yeah, Netflix uh, TV show. So this moment is like back or something. But there's no way out. Meaning, like 
you you will just be the Tannehassic coats of like the black entertainment industry, right? So you'll be the enlightened like artist among the the black bourgeoisie. So that's that's the end game. Spike Lee produced the very first comedy special of a comedian called Gerard Carmichael at the store. Uh, Gerard Carmichael is insanely conservative, but he's applauded by, you know, white liberals as this kind of, you know, edgy comic or something for under, you know, uh, during the Obama years, Gerard Carmichael said black people, black Americans should, should be grateful for slavery because at least they're not in Africa. It's identical, identical to what Richard Spencer has said. As a black man, I finally just want to be able to be a Republican. Like, he says stuff like that. All I do is talk shit about niggas. That's what I do. I talk so much shit about niggas. Just niggas this, niggas that. Niggas, uh, niggas will never overcome. That's one of my favorite things. I don't, I don't, that's just a personal thing. I don't think black people are ever overcome. This is a personal thing that I believe. I think, you know, I have a lot of reasons. I have actually 15 very specific reasons. Number, uh, I won't go through all of them. Number 15 is Tyler Perry's typewriter. Number eight, wait, I'm gonna skip around. Number eight is, uh, is, uh, is Air Jordan release dates. Uh, because I feel like black people used to use that time more productively instead of waiting in line at the mall for 12 hours, uh, like maybe applying for small business loans. And to make it explicit, you mean that, right, you're talking about Spike Lee, like what, what influences Spike Lee? Uh, you're talking about Spike Lee's politics? Spike Lee saw something in him that he liked, and I'm just saying that that, that completely jives with the Donald Glover trajectory in terms of their perspective and their orientation towards okay. like treatment of like black issues or something. And so it's just really bizarre to see this as like the apotheosis of woke black identity art. Well, I mean, it's incoherent. Because what you're saying, you know, like, why can't you just let me be a black man and be part of the Republican Party or something like this? I'm like, oh, it's kind of like you're reading a Kanye West tweet or something. But, like, I guess that lives in, like, an alternative universe, according to people that support Donald Glover. It predates Trump. <laughs> yeah, right? it was before Trump. Yeah. You're not allowed to say that anymore yeah. as a black person. You're not allowed to say that anymore. Yeah. Dirty Rock was, I, I did this this Chris Rock internship at Comedy Central, and I got to meet him. Right. And he was talking about comedy, and, the, the you know, I, all with all my stuff, I always liked the truth stuff. And he was just like, yeah, he's like, if you tell the truth... In a way that people aren't ready for, you'll always get a laugh. And that stuck with me. Like, it was like, it's true. Like, every time he That's talks. That's interesting. He was like, every time he talks, he was like a sermon. I was like, that whole niggas versus black people thing, yeah, I was yeah. like amazing like that, i was like oh yeah that's something that everybody kind of felt that was a career defining bit yeah i mean that was the bit that was the bit and it was just like and and it was something that i think people had thought but was just afraid to do well i think what's interesting is like the people that thought it were black people yeah i i don't know that 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 i think that was a whole new lens for white people but I <laughs> really think, yeah in a way I, I i think that that what was really amazing about it was he was really talking about the black community, almost specifically for the black community in a way. I mean, when he did it, I was just telling somebody, this, when he did it, it, he did it like the way my aunt did it. Right. Because my aunt would always be like, these fucking niggas at the bank, it fucking pissed. Like, she would just get so right. mad. It was, I think it was an it was un frustrated thing of just like, I'm trying to do something good. Yeah. And you're bringing me down. Right. And I get 
lumped in with you guys. Well, I think that's like, like, I think that that was what made it a fucking amazing bit was that it was something unspoken or understood in the black community. Now, we got a lot of things, a lot of racism going on in the world right now. Who's more racist, black people or white people? Black people. You know why? Because we hate black people, too. (laughs) Everything white people don't like about black people, black people really don't like about black people. There's some shit going on with black people right now. It's like a civil war going on with black people. And there's two sides. It's black people and there's niggas. And niggas have got to go. Every time black people want to have a good time, ignorant ass niggas fuck it up. Can't do shit. Can't do shit without some ignorant ass niggas fucking it up. Can't do nothing. Can't keep a disco open more than three weeks. Grand opening, grand closing. Can't go to a movie the first week it come out. Why? Because niggas are shooting at the screen. What kind of ignorant shit is that? Hey, that's a good movie. That's so good, I got to bust a cap in here. Hey, I love black people, but I hate niggas, bro. Oh, I hate niggas. Boy, I wish they let me join the Ku Klux Klan. Shit, I do a drive-by from here to Brooklyn. I'm Nogales, and I am joined by two of our members, uh, Rory Hannigan, who's a platypus member and undergraduate student at the University of Sheffield. He's a chapter head there and leads the reading group. Hiya. And Cam Hardy, who is a member in Toronto. Hi, Cam. Hi. So one way that the Financial Times put it is that the UK's departure from the European Union would lead to a reinstatement of security posts that were taken down after the Good Friday deal, that it could become a target for dissident Republican paramilitaries. I think that's the, um, the implication of, of what might happen, especially because the areas close to the border, for the most part, leaned heavily towards the Republican movement and support for the IRA. So there were parts near the border where it was deemed, for example, uh, too dangerous for British military forces to travel by by land, and they only traveled by helicopter because of the the frequency of uh, sniper attacks and bombings and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I mean, the 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 realism of any of that is uh, another another question, I think, and it's something that obviously there's uh, political questions within Northern Ireland that the the main parties there have a lot to gain by sort of stoking this uh imagination of a return to conflict like so what like why is it benefiting anyone to stoke these fears i would say that i would say Sinn Féin's primary bargaining tool is to to keep this kind of peace process 
this uh, this ongoing process towards, in their view, a United Ireland, in Unionist view, a return to Northern Ireland being a normal society, uh, is to keep this going. And they, throughout their history, in during the early years, it was essentially about auctioning off the IRA, um, saying that we'll wind down this this group in exchange for uh, political concessions and representation within Northern Ireland society. And now that the IRA is largely gone, surrendered their weapons, it's about managing um, managing the, tr- the tribes of Northern Ireland and saying that there's the prospect of a return to violence if this doesn't happen, if the peace process doesn't get continued. And in their view, the peace process is completely tied to the gains of their political organization. Sinn Féin, which is the Republican uh, Party, benefits from this insofar as it uh, becomes kind of the gatekeeper of Northern Ireland and the potential violence that would otherwise break out if they're not in leadership. Yeah, they portray themselves as being the only force that can contain this 600-year-old ancient anger of the uh, the Catholic community of Northern Ireland. It's interesting because, like, um, it, I'm kind of telling that, like, for example, someone like Bill Clinton is really popular in Northern Ireland because of his role in securing the peace process. And, and like, just kind of linking to that, I mean, it does sort of speak to something about communitarian identity politics more generally in Northern Ireland because it seems like what the kind of uh, architects of like the Good Friday Agreement were, were trying to do was like um, what everyone was kind of hoping for rather was that like, um, OK, the two sides of the divide would remain frozen in place with certain taboos and restrictions um, until basically like all the old prejudiced people died and everyone else just kind of like forgot about it and just kind of gradually merged together into quote unquote uh, like normal functioning society. And and so like while it, there is commemoration and memorialization of this history, there is also an attempt to put it behind people, or like to to kind of put it behind like society. But like weirdly enough, like how that happens is like actually doubling down on, you know, on like the division. So for example, there are more of, uh, you know, like the peace walls, uh, most famously in Belfast between like the, the Protestant and Catholic communities, you know, to basically stop them, you know, acting violently towards each other. There are something like twice as many of those um, now than there were before 1998. So it's, it's, it's this kind of funny thing. I mean, I guess like now that we have Brexit and this whole crisis of the EU, there is, there is a sense that like these sort of political changes are kind of like pulling at the seams of this. Um, yeah, because like, like Sinn Féin, for example, um, in recent years seems to have, like its political fortunes seem to have started to take on like more of a kind of all-island dynamic. So their kind of like share of the votes in elections, it seems to, it seems to be like more in sync between the electoral fate of Sinn Féin in the north and in the rest of Ireland. So uh, yeah, there's a kind of long rumbling, perhaps political change, but also it's really been kind of... Uh, brought up and inflamed by Brexit, I'd say. How is it that Brexit is affecting the political map, the political landscape in Northern Ireland? Like, is it actually, is it weakening the unionist leadership? Is it, or is, like, is anything actually changing as a result of the Brexit negotiations in the political landscape of Northern Ireland? Or is it just business as usual? 
I mean, obviously, I suppose you have to consider the fact that, okay, the, the Democratic Unionists um, in Westminster now kind of hold significant degree of power in terms of, uh, in terms of because like after the 2017 election, you know, the Conservatives lost their majority and are kind of having to uh, lean on the DUP basically for votes and in particular in order to kind of get Brexit through. So, I, you know, Northern Ireland did vote fairly narrowly, I think, to remain in the EU. So I guess there's this kind of question of, um, is, is Brexit going to cut across Protestant slash Catholic, you know, unionist versus Republican political lines? Or is it just going to kind of um, just kind of kind of reinforce the old ones, old like tensions? Mm-hmm. In terms of how this relates to the left um, in Ireland and like so, for example, the 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 people before profit people, um, they they've always been kind of marginal, in some sense because you know the the original provisional IRA was actually kind of formed in opposition to like this sort of. Uh, leftward turn among like the republican movement in the in the night in like the 1970s and was like actually kind of doubling down on the nationalism whereas like um i guess what you might call a kind of more uh like stalinist national liberationist um uh perspective was you know making gains in the republican movement at the time but actually like that left quote-unquote perspective it didn't really kind of survive the the 1980s really and it especially now i mean it does seem like uh a lot of the left are really just tailing either Sinn Féin or like the 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 social democrats in ireland one point i would just make following up on that is um that the the current leadership of of Sinn Féin um the people who have taken over from Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness um like the Adams and McGuinness leadership who came to power in the Republican movement in the late seventies were considered a left turn back against that more nationalistic turn. But it was left in an interesting way because like the examples that they really drew from were groups like the ANC. And then by the 1980s, they had, they developed close ties with parts of the British left, uh, like the, the GLC, the, the Ken Livingston, like the loony left, so-called, and kind of embraced a lot of the sort of the language of community empowerment and um, multiculturalism that kind of helped facilitate what came next in the 1990s with the peace process and redefining the struggle. Uh, what, what was previously considered a struggle for national liberation was now kind of reinterpreted as a struggle for community respect and the term uh, parity of esteem in Northern Ireland society. So what, if anything, does the history of the IRA have to do with the history of political Marxism? And specifically, maybe since you guys have both referenced the 1970s, um, how, how was this history uh, reconfigured or how, how was this relationship between political Marxism and the IRA reconfigured in the 1970s? It does kind of relate to, to what we're what we're talking about with regards to present politics, because you know you have all the anxiety about violence flaring up again, which is perhaps overblown because just on a very kind of material level, there's really kind of no uh, scope for uh, the provisional IRA to rearm. 
because like in the 1970s and 1980s they they were like a sufficient part of their arms were coming from like the eastern bloc and from uh, later on from like Gaddafi and obviously like both of those things are now historical they're not with us anymore so e- even just in terms of logistics like it's not at all clear that they've got anything to kind of ride on also there's the question of the political moment that that they were a part of of that kind of uh you know, kind of 60s, 70s, 80s, um, third world nationalist uh, movement. And that and that as well is like, um, it's becoming kind of more and more distant by the day. I would say that when we talk about the conflict in Ireland, we're talking about the period, the most recent period, which starts in the late 1960s and ends in the mid to late 1990s. And the really, the key year for when things really start up is 1968. So in 1968, you have the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement, which is a movement against discrimination against Catholics in Northern Ireland society who were restricted from access to good housing and jobs. And there was electoral gerrymandering and all sorts of things that were designed to keep the Unionist majority permanently in power. And you had the Civil Rights Movement that was drawing, drawing its inspiration from the American Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and it was dominated the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement, was started and kind of cautiously run and monitored by the IRA at the time. And the IRA at the time was an organization that, after a failed campaign to attack the uh, the British-Irish border in the 1950s, the, the principal players in it rethought a lot of their political positions and came under the influence of British communists and Irish communists largely through the Communist Party of Britain's Association for Irish Expatriates, which was called the Connolly Association. So civil rights became their strategy because they wanted to overcome sectarian tensions in Northern Ireland before launching this sort of national liberation movement that would be free of sort of um, Protestant versus Catholic ugliness. And Mm. the civil rights movement is met with violence on part of... uh, the, the Unionist community in Northern Ireland and the government and violence that stems from that from that reaction to the civil rights movement is what gives the split in the IRA and the, the emergence of a more militant, uh, more nationalist and more Catholic IRA its, its inspiration because they returned to their traditional role in Northern Ireland, which is defenders of the Catholic community. And that, I think, is something that's an important tension that's always been there in Irish republicanism is over is over uh, the, the, the national versus, like, the, the Catholic or the, the universal French revolutionary spirit versus the spirit of the defense of the Catholic community. And um, that's something that's been there almost since, the, since 1798, the, uh, the uprising in, in Ireland then. It was an alliance between people inspired by the French Revolution, and a lot of their allies in that were um, from a group called the Catholic Defenders, who were an agrarian secret society that fought against uh, Protestant agrarian secret societies over who was going to control the linen industry in Northern Ireland. So, so what was, if I can take you back to the 68 moment, um, what was the political strategy then by 
the left in the 1960s or in the late 60s and in the, in the 70s, or I guess to be more specific, um, since the IRA does split over the course of the 1969 onward, what were the different strategies presented and how were they, how did they succeed or fail in the 1970s? So the, uh, the official, as the, the more leftward uh, part of the organization, the official IRA's strategy was to use the civil rights movement to essentially reform the society of Northern Ireland uh, and try to turn it into a non-sectarian society uh, because they saw that sectarian tension as the principal stumbling block towards any sort of national national liberation and socialist movement. Whereas the, the people who rejected that strategy, their initial their initial uh, war strategy was essentially just ongoing escalation, just making the society in Northern Ireland completely ungovernable in an attempt to draw Britain to the ta- table and force a British withdrawal. And their, their frames of reference were Algeria and uh, Vietnam and the earlier Irish War of Independence. So socialism through national liberation versus like ongoing resistance and escalation. I mean, obviously there's nuances to both, but I think that would be a fairly fair way of describing uh, describing the difference. I know that there's no current pro-union movement that has popular support. Um, and so this question of whether or not uh, the EU would impose some kind of bureaucratic version of Irish unity um, raises all kinds of questions to me about, well, why isn't there a movement for unity by the left? Uh, or whether or not it's even possible to imagine something like this, or whether it's desirable. Is that something that people talk about on the left in the UK at all? I mean, not really. It. I mean, to be honest, um, as was kind of mentioned earlier, the the kind of trajectory of, uh, of you know, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness was towards, um, you know, parity of esteem and, you know, good community relationships. And that's very much been the trajectory of the left in Britain as well, um, like in, in the 80s and 90s, especially. Um, so the, those kind of... the. So, for example, you had um, around the time Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party um, and he appointed, you know, John McDonnell as his uh, shadow chancellor. And both of whom in the 70s and 80s did have a history of like sympathy to the the Adams McGuinness uh, wing of the Irish Republicans and were around the the GLC. So like uh, John McDonnell was quite, quite a prominent member of the GLC administration and yeah, and and they got kind of um, in in around twenty fifteen, and from then on, they've been barraged by the British press about the, their closeness to Irish republicanism in a period when you know they were still setting off bombs on the on the British mainland. But at the same time, it it's kind of hard to hit them with that now, like substantively, because like especially since Good Friday, they have that kind of politics does align itself pretty substantially with um the peace process and like they're they're both they they both want to they have both said that they want to avoid um disrupting the peace process so today at least it's kind of difficult to 
Um, it like these questions even of uh, you, like universal um, emancipation versus like protecting communities. Um, these questions are just like not even addressed really on on the left in Britain or I'd I'd say in Ireland either substantively. I think there's also an extent uh, in which the border talking about the border becomes a kind of uh, a substitute or for what's really going on. So like the 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 war that went from the late 60s to the, the 90s in a sense it was about the border and the lack of Irish unity but in a, in a in a more real sense it was about the mistreatment of the Catholic community in Northern Ireland. And similarly uh, the first the first split in the IRA which is after the Irish War of Independence it's not about the existence of a border but it's about it's about um, the character of the Irish state whether it was going to be a state that uh, was still part of the Commonwealth and there was still the Queen as the head of state. And that kind of, I think, gets lost a little bit and it becomes about like the question of national unity rather than the, the other questions that the border might just be a kind of uh, an easy, an easy no, symbol of. But I don't... So what, what should we be talking about then? I, I think it, like, it's, it's kind of strange to talk about the Irish question now and to talk about these concepts like Irish national sovereignty and Irish unity in the present uh like that doesn't seem to me a political task that's really on the mind of a lot of people and I'm not trying to counterpose that to like bread and butter issues or something like that but it's like it's hard to talk about the existence of a customs checkpoint being being this this grave insult when you know Ireland has completely been integrated into the the global economy um, and is is better for it. So do you think so, that this is just smoke screens like by bourgeois politics and like is that what this amounts to? I, I, I feel like that would be a bit of a kind of a, maybe too much of like a conspiratorial approach. Questions of the past still still nag and tug at people because they weren't resolved in any satisfactory way uh mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that said i'm not sure that like any any sort of attempt to just kind of recreate something something older and something that had these heroic elements to it would really accomplish anything like you see that there are still these very small dissident republican groups around and you know they have no social base they're just sort of uh this kind of this antisocial element that have the the language and the trappings of previous generations but not uh not any of the 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 moment that created them. And it's down along the fall road it's very long to be lying in the dark with the provo company a comrade on me left I another one on me right I kept a ammunition for me little arm alive Stopped by a soldier, he said, you are a swine. He hit me with his rifle and he kicked me in the groin. I begged and I pleaded, all oh, my manners were polite. But all the time I'm thinking of me little arm light. And it's down in 
the long sight it's where I long to be Lying in the dark with the Provo Company A comrade on me left and another one on me right And a clip of ammunition for me little arm of light That was a clip from an old Irish Republican classic released in 1975. And here is President Bill Clinton in 1998, the year of the Good Friday Agreement. The Irish thing ought to give you hope for the Middle East because the the lesson is just don't ever stop. Just, you know, just, and in the end, if the will for peace is stronger than the impulse to avoid it, and the impulse to avoid the tough decisions and the sacrifices that are made, that have to be made, then the will for peace can prevail. That's the lesson here. So I would hope that those who care desperately about the the Middle East and want the peace process there to prevail will take great heart here. Yeah, I mean, I guess one, one thing that it's been doing just in a really superficial way is to elevate the Good Friday Agreement as like a true resolution. Um, of conflict and to elevate therefore this moment of the 1990s I recently saw like a picture I think it's it's Bill Clinton I can't remember if it's Bill Clinton and Tony Blair together um, like you know in support for the Good Friday Agreement but anyway to elevate this moment of the 1990s is a kind of political resolution right um, and to what extent was it a political resolution is unclear to me. But maybe maybe it was, meaning like maybe the fact that now um, Ireland has been integrated into the global economy means that, and in the absence of a kind of Marxist left to challenge that, means that some of these old problems are simply no longer... Um, they cannot. They can no longer be politicized in the way in which they were before. I don't know. Perhaps, but I I feel like it kind of brings us back around to the question of Brexit. Like, if if the UK kind of goes, um, I don't know, kind of really kind of decisively leaves the EU, then because of like the level of economic integration between Ireland and Britain, then that might end up like pulling Ireland out as well. Which is obviously speculative, and like I've got no idea if that's actually going to happen. But um, these questions still like aren't resolved, even though the kind of political forms that were like thrown up by them historically are still kind of you know clattering around without much substance anymore. I, I'm not entirely sure that the kind of the the, the liberal or like you know mainstream political hysteria about uh, oh like the IRA are going to reactivate or something. Like obviously that's kind of um, hysterical but at the same time that it, it does kind of um, speak to the fact that this is still unresolved to a certain extent what that means for like uh irish politics if there's going to be a if there would be a kind of potential nationalist resurgence or even like a move towards irish unification i'm not sure but i i do feel like it's not entirely out of the question I remember Cam wrote that um, the in the late 90s, a bunch of IRA members were caught in Colombia training the FARC in bomb creating. But like even now, the FARC has become like a, an official like governmental institution, like in a party. 
Um, and so to what extent, like, is that whole moment of national resistance, sort of anti-colonial, uh, as a form of politics on the left, like, to what extent is that moment passed? Um, and why, if it has been gone now for some time, does it continue to haunt bourgeois politics in this way? Even though the actual material resources, for example, in weapons, uh, is not really there, nor is the political desirability even by people that are uh, or that were part of these paramilitary organizations there. Um, Cam sent an article uh, from the Irish Times on these like ex-IRA folks that were basically saying that uh, this whole theory that there was going to be a resurgence of paramilitary violence is just a bunch of bull. And so it, it just it's kind of baffling like why why that memory comes up if if both the material conditions and the political will um, by these groups is not there. Like why does it have to look this way? I think that the 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 main parties in in Northern Ireland have learned that the implication of violence is the best way to get what they want. Uh, as we were talking about before, so they 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 have a lot to gain from this idea that there's going to be a return to the the bad old days, and I mean I don't know if either of either either of you guys saw the the film The Foreigner with Jackie Chan, uh, but it might actually be like the best representation of this dynamic. It's about Northern Ireland, and uh, Pierce Brosnan plays this Jerry Adams type ex paramilitary who's now a politician. And it, it betrays it all in this very sensationalistic way, but essentially that they are trying to negotiate some deal and are using uh, using these dissident Republicans to carry out acts of violence to to get what they want. Obviously, this is like you know it's a it's a, a an action movie, but it kind of gets it in a way that a lot of uh, a lot of people I think miss, and that is that that the politics of this whole province, because of the nature of the conflict and of this managed process of conflict resolution, really depend upon the idea that there are only certain players who can keep the communities from just wiping each other out. And that is kind of the source of so much of their standing as, as political, political parties. I haven't been affiliated with the IRA for 30 years. When I was, I fought hard against the violence. I went to prison for what I did and paid my debt. Now I serve the politics of both sides, trying to heal the wounds and bridge the divide. Again, my sincere condolences. But there's nothing I can do. You will tell me who killed my child. Again, I don't know. You will change your mind. Can we just talk about the royal wedding for like a quick sec so we can <laughs> so we can shit on the royals before you guys leave the podcast? Of course. Okay, thank God. <laughs> so there was like a a black choir at the at the wedding or some shit. And like Martin Luther King was like invoked, like I think twice in that like preacher's speech 
Yeah, I don't I don't know, man. Like this shit just always gets me like really angry, I guess. Like so much work goes into putting on the royal wedding. It's kind of disgusting. I mean, I for one welcome our new uh, woke monarch overlords. <laughs> okay. Um it's really strange. I mean, I, I also saw this um, American tabloid, I think, and, and the front page of it was like, uh, over there, they have royal weddings. Over here, we buried school children because of this like school shooting in Texas really recently. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was the most like mind-bending thing. Just just kind of like genteel um, British civility with a kind of sprinkling of wokeness versus like, you know, Trump's America. Whatever. <laughs> like the Americans are killing each other, but we're so civilized we're having a royal wedding. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing more civilized than an aristocratic ritual, you know. What I find interesting, though, is the way that people are cynical about it. And not like, I get, I get being cynical, but the way in which people are cynical. Like in Canada, which, you know, the Queen is our head of state, people will be like, well, they don't, they don't do anything. Uh, which, for me, always raises the question, do you want them to, to do something? But then it's like, there are people who are out there, they, they go to a lot of events, they're clearly doing something. And I think, like, what the royal family and the monarchy as an institution does sometimes is misrecognized by the left. That it becomes about them being not value for money, rather than uh, what they say or what their existence says about the British state or uh, the Commonwealth. Yeah, it's funny. People on the left in Britain seem to have this kind of weird ambivalence because, like, on the one hand, people are like, oh, I, I don't care about them. It's just kind of like, you know, it's just like a bunch of frippery. And then on the other hand, there's this kind of, like, um, you know, guillotine, fetishizing, bloodthirstiness. And, like, people kind of, like, seesaw between those, like, really quite violently. It's quite a spectacle. Should we not guillotine them, then? We can retire them in Florida. If they insist on keeping their titles and laying claim to their ancestry, then, then yeah, of course they have to be guillotined. But, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the player, it's the game, right? Who said the queen?